0: So um, we began a couple weeks ago this uh, this series on the book of Acts, and we're going to get to kind of a fraught passage today. Uh, the back end of Acts chapter 1 is uh, most often skipped over in the preaching of the book of Acts. Uh, it's just kind of this, this odd narrative, you're going to hear it in just a minute, but uh, it's so interesting. I was looking this week just to kind of see how different people have handled it, and like They handled it by skipping it. It's great. Like, uh, some of you know the name Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg is a prolific preacher. He has preached on all kinds of different stuff. I I, I found seven or eight sermons on the first half of Acts chapter 1. I found a couple dozen sermons on Acts chapter 2. He has never preached the back half of Acts chapter 1. So get ready. This is going to be so much fun as we jump in. It, It is really fascinating, though, as I've studied this passage how um, we have largely, as the American church, ignored this passage, and we've also ignored what I believe is the implication of this passage, which will make a little bit more sense to you in just a minute. So um, before we dive in, I'm going to ask Hannah to come and read for us uh, the second half of Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12, going through verse 26. So listen to the word of God.
1: Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was, in all, about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. And now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that the field was called to their own language, Keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the heart of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles.
0: Thanks, Hannah. Would you pray with me? Jesus, would you now speak to us through your spirit and through your word that we would be formed increasingly into your likeness? God, we long for you, we recognize our need for you, and so we draw near. Would you open up our hearts and our minds to be able to receive your word? Guard my words that they would come from your spirit alone, that the words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground to be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would remain God, that we would be changed more and more into the image of Christ. Do this work we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I don't know if you saw it on the news, but about three weeks ago, the Surgeon General General issued a report. Um, That doesn't happen all the time, but here and there throughout history, the Surgeon General has uh, released a a very specific report about a health threat. The one that you probably are most familiar with is the one that appears in that little box on the bottom of all of the cigarette ads. The Surgeon General's report says that cigarettes are harmful to your health or whatever the way it explains that. This was a Surgeon General's report in that flow, but it was a report on the epidemic of loneliness and isolation. Really interesting idea. Um, we 're actually well behind some of the European countries who have issued reports like this in the past, and when the Surgeon General issues a report this isn 't a sociological study that 's uh, noting that we are more separated than we were in the past, although that 's true. what the Surgeon General is saying is that statistically through some method that 's way beyond my ability to comprehend and understand, um, there is actual health uh, problems there are actual health problems that are happening with our isolation with our loneliness. Let me read to you just a bit out of the beginning of that report. Dr. Murphy says this, loneliness is far more than just a bad feeling. It harms both individual and societal health. It is associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, stroke, depression, anxiety, and premature death. The mortality impact of being socially disconnected is similar to that caused by smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day, and even greater than that, associated with obesity and physical inactivity. And the harmful consequences of a society that lacks social connection can be felt in our schools, workplaces, and civic organizations where performance, productivity, and engagement are diminished. Loneliness and isolation represent profound threats to our health and well-being. Now, whether or not you agree with the Surgeon General's report, what um, has been... uh, For sure, happening over a period of time within our society is that we have become increasingly individualistic. It's measured in all kinds of different ways, but you can just see it in the way that we interact. We live primarily in single family homes, and we uh, no longer live in ways that are interconnected, whether by generations or uh, interconnected with the community around us. We live uh, increasingly as individuals. That makes sense that a society that's moving towards individualism would have people in that culture who are moving towards individualism. But what about the church? What does it look like to be the church in the midst of a culture that is increasingly individualistic? The church, in the same way that culture has shifted, has also shifted in many ways to become individualistic as well. We, uh, we approach faith through our own lens, in our own way. And when we don't like it the way that others approach it, we just shift to a different community or to a different place. We have, uh, d- we have tiny little denominations that have broken down over uh, third and fourth and fifth tier doctrines in order to be able to have what we want individually, to be able to, uh, to focus our faith in to uh, the, the finest detail. And along the way, we as the church have also gotten to a place where we are increasingly alone and isolated. What does it look like for the church to push back on that broader cultural trend in order to be the community that God has created us to be? That's the question I want us to try to approach as we look at the second half of Acts chapter 1. What you see in Acts chapter 1 is a community that is unified in a variety of different ways, but they're unified by need, and they're unified by an awareness of their need. And I think that may be the big jump for us in 21st century North America. I want to look at three ways they're unified. They're unified first through prayer, they're unified through the word, and they're unified through waiting together. Unified through prayer through the Word, and through waiting. So if you are looking at Acts chapter 1, you'll see uh, verses 12 and 13 uh, give a bit of a narrative. Uh, they lay out the 11 remaining disciples who are traveling together from the place where Jesus ascended into the upper room. And so there's this uh, marking of time after the ascension of Jesus, that last vitally important piece of the life of Jesus. So birth, uh, incarnation, the uh, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension of Jesus, all of which are vitally important within uh, the life of Christ. All of that, that last piece just happened. Jesus floated up into the air and he gave them these final instructions. You are going to wait to receive power in order to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he floats up in the air and then Luke records for us that they return to Jerusalem from the mountain. Uh, And as they go to Jerusalem, they go into the upper room and he records all that are there. And then in verse 14, it says this. All these... With one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. So the first thing you see is that they are united by prayer. They're unified together by prayer. Prayer, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, I said it was one of the mega themes throughout the book of Acts. If you go through and you count the times that the disciples gathered together to pray in small gatherings or larger gatherings, you'll find it's more than once a chapter, The, uh, the group the, the, the church gathered together to pray. And um, what you find as the primary marker of the early church, you find as one of the great weaknesses of the modern church. Very interesting. The, the reason I believe that prayer was such a marker in the early church that unified the church was because they knew without a doubt that they needed the work of God, right? There's 120 of them in the world, And Jesus has just said, uh, "You hundred and twenty, go hang out. Power is going to come upon you, and you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You're going to take this message that you're going to get pushed back from the Jews. You're going to get pushed back from the Romans. You're going to push push back from all of the known world around you. The hundred and twenty of you are going to take this message to the ends of the earth. You're going to convert the world. And they had to be saying." um, we need help with that, right? Like, we can't do that on our own. Their vision that God had given them was so great, and their uh, recognition of who they are was so realistic that they knew they needed help. And I think one of the reasons why the church today struggles to pray is because that's inverted. We have a very small vision of what it looks like to be the church. And we have a very high view of ourselves, and when you have those two things together, prayer becomes something that you have to force yourself to enter into. But when you have a high vision and a realistic view of self, prayer is the natural outflow of the church. A.B. Simpson, some of you know, uh, was the... Uh, the. Um, Founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, at the time that they began to gather together as a small group in New York City in the late 1800s, there was no thought of a denomination or a a fellowship of churches. There was just a small group of people. Um, they had left the Presbyterian Church because there was no place in the Presbyterian Church for immigrants and minorities and those who were poor. It was an upper-middle-class white church, and they felt that the gospel must reach further than that. And so they gathered together, and there's a few things that were recorded of those early gatherings. One of the things was a specific thanksgiving for the fact that they were, quote, few and weak. Interesting. They're thanking God because they are few and weak. And one of the very first uh, studies that they did was in the prophet Zechariah. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. See, because they knew they were small, because they knew they didn't have the ability to do it, they had to rely on the spirit of God. And in the same way, this early church is united by prayer because they recognize that they can't do it on their own. If you've ever gathered with us on a First Wednesday, there's a unique thing that happens during our prayer gatherings. It may be 40 or 50 people some months; it may be 100, 120 people another month. But um, there's not a lot of horizontal connection on First Wednesdays. We, we gather to worship and we gather to pray. But this odd thing that happens—that over the course of that hour and a half, there's this connectivity that starts to happen between people, even though we're not even really talking to each other. We're praying but you start to feel connected to this group. And over a period of time, those who come month after month after month have this sense of connectivity to others who are doing the same thing, even though they may not even have a close relational connection to them. Why? Well, I like to think of it as spokes on a bicycle wheel. Spokes all run together to the hub in the center. And if we're moving down the spokes... You're just going towards that hub, and I'm going towards that hub on the other spoke. But as we get closer and closer to the hub, we are naturally getting closer and closer to one another as well. And that's what's happening in the early church. They're pursuing after the center, which is Christ. And through this act of prayer, their hearts are drawing closer to one another. They're no longer isolated and lonely. They're connected together in community as they move together towards prayer. Tyler Staten, in his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, which is a great title for a book, by the way, uh, Tyler Staten says this, the assumption of biblical prayer is that God's action always precedes my request. The aim is not to get God in on what I think he should be doing, rather the aim of prayer is to get us in on what God is doing, become aware of it, join it, and enjoy the fruit of participation. When we gather to pray, we don't bring our own agenda in and ask God to bless our agenda, but rather we come together to seek God's heart. It's the ultimate act of kingdom people. Remember, this is the kingdom going forth. And the kingdom means, among other things, the rule and reign of Christ here on earth. And so what's happening as they gather to pray is that they're submitting themselves to the rule and reign of Christ. Not their own ideas or their own passions or their own understandings. They're coming to seek out what God has for them. So prayer starts to unify them. Now you may come this morning and you hear the uh, Surgeon General's report on loneliness and isolation. You hear this call to prayer and you think like, okay, so practically what does that look like? Because I'm here, I'm in this gathering, which by the way, simply attending a larger group gathering like this doesn't create uh, connection. It actually can uh, make loneliness and isolation even more difficult at times depending on where you're at. How do you enter in? How do, you, how do you connect? Well, First Wednesday, I said, is one of those ways that you can do that. But did you know at 7.30 and 9.30, every single Sunday morning, there's a group of people who gather to pray before our worship gatherings. You can come in here an hour early and gather with people who are together crying out before God. Not bringing our own agendas, but bringing God's heart before the people coming after him, moving together on those spokes of a wheel, drawing close together. Right downstairs in room 21, you can, starting next week, just come to worship an hour early. And by coming to worship an hour early, you can enter in into prayer and thereby enter into the unity that comes through the Spirit. So the early church is unified by prayer. And then there's this gap between 14 and 15. Um, there, there's nothing there, so you can't, you can't read it but you can just sense that something, there had to be this kind of awkward sense, right? Because the, the entire group of disciples came, so the entire church, as it were, the 120 people, they're gathered in the upper room, they get there, and there, there has to be this sense of, okay, now what? <laughs> we're here, now, now what do we do? Like he said, wait, wait. What are we doing, right? Have you ever, how many people have gotten uh, some sort of a piece of furniture or a bookshelf or something like that from Ikea? Have you ever done that before? Those you poor people like me, yeah, it's really, so see, here's what, if you've never, if, if you've never gone to Ikea, there's this experience that happens. You go and you see whether it be a piece of furniture or a bookshelf or something and you see the price and you think, that's a great price for that thing. Like, that's, what, a, what a great deal that is. And so you take the little tag or you write the little note or you grab it off the shelf or whatever and you get the, get the box and the box is always impossibly small for the size of the thing that you're about to build, make, engage with. And so you have this, this box. You open up the box and you pull out a piece of paper and the piece of paper does not have English words on it. It, it has um, some Swedish words and pictures, a lot of pictures and numbers. And so you... you you take the piece of paper, and you flatten it out, and you take all of the pieces, and you set them over here, and you look, and there's this gap in between, because you're saying, there's got to be more to it than that, because <laughs> I'm never going to be able to build that with this. Like, it just doesn't work. I don't have enough information. It's kind of like where the disciples were, because Jesus has said to them, okay, guys, here's the plan. You, you go and wait, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you and empower you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And they go, and they're sitting in the room, and they have to be going. Now what? <laughs> like, okay, so, so what's 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 the next step? Like, do, we, do you have like a piece of paper, something we should follow here? what's, what's going on? So they begin this process of discerning. John Stott, when he uh, comments on this section of the book of Acts, he says that the discernment process for the disciples takes three parts. So the first part, he said, is prayer. So we've already talked about being united in prayer. So they're coming, they're listening to God, and they're putting themselves intentionally into a position of being uh, kingdom inhabitants, being in the kingdom of God. Secondly, Stott says, they have an element of communal common sense which can be lacking in some communities, I will admit. But in this instance, there's this gathering together, and they have a, a common sense about them. Let me just read for you. We're going to skip. I know you would like me to talk about Judas's bowels, and we are not. I, it's in there. Um, that's going to be on the daily podcast this week. It really has nothing to do with the passage that we're in. It's a parenthetical note, and if you're interested, daily podcast we will talk about Judas's bowels. But I want you to jump down all the way to um, uh, verse 21. Peter says this, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So what Peter says, he stands up and he says, we need to put a 12th person into this circle. So there's a common sense component to it. There's also a word component to it, which we're going to get to in just a minute. But there's this common sense component to it where Peter is saying, we, we, there's only 11 of us, and there needs to be 12 of us. And you may be saying, well, that doesn't seem like common sense to me. Like, why, why is he doing that? Because if you go further, Acts chapter 12, uh, you, you see the first of the disciples of the 12 who are martyred. And at that point, they don't put a 12th one in. So why now? Why is it important for them to do that now? And we'll, again, we'll dive into this as part of the daily podcast as well to go a little bit deeper into it. But the heart of it is, is simply this. They, they recognize as first century Jews that the, the, the story of the creator God is that he had created and called Israel to be a witness to the world. And so now that they understood the Messiah has come in Christ and that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets, it's now their job to be a witness, that's the language that Jesus has used to them, to be a witness to the world. And the way that Israel was created to be a witness to the world was holistic. There were 12 tribes. And so with the uh, one missing, there was this kind of common sense like we need to put someone into that role. Now, was it right for them to do that? Uh, there's there's debate back and forth. Should they have waited on Paul or should they have uh, brought in James who was uh, the brother of Jesus but hadn't been with them from the beginning? What they established in what they seem to have as a co- kind of a common sense parameters was it needs to be someone who's been with us this entire time all the way through from the baptism of Jesus by John all the way up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And and then Peter grounds that in the scriptures. So they're not just unified by this common sense in prayer but by the word itself. So if you look uh, in verse 20, it says this, um, it is written in the book of Psalms, Then there's a quote from Psalm 69, may his camp become desolate and let there be one, no one to dwell in it. And then another quote from Psalm 109, let another take his office. So Peter's pulled these two different quotes from the Psalms, put them together, and he's brought them to the community. And he said, this is, this is what it seems to me that the Lord is saying. And the common sense component of it, uh, this is the way that we would go about filling that slot. What's that process look like in the 21st century? Because probably there's a lot of you saying, I'm not sure I know the Psalms well enough to pull out a single verse and say, this is the direction we're supposed to take. This is the pathway uh, that that we're supposed to be moving on. But what you see Peter doing is bringing the text to the community, and the community together discerning the will of God, the pathway before them, using prayer, using the scriptures, and using their common sense together, they enter into uh, the, the pathway that God has out in front of them. It doesn't work like this perfectly at all times, but the design and intention of a community group is something very similar to that. That we would have a group of people who are committed to one another, who would engage the word through prayer and bringing in the common sense of the group around them, and sense this is where God's taking us, this is what it looks like for us to be faithful today. So that invitation into community is one that we can enter into today. In this world of isolation and the world of loneliness, one of the pathways in is to say, this group of several hundred, it's, it's, it's too difficult to connect here, but... A group of 8 to 10 to 12 to 15, that's a group of people I can connect with and hear from, engage the word with, and grow together uh, towards a common end that we would kind of move forward together. So um, that's another one of those practices that's a real, tangible, take a step forward, to step into a community group and to have people who are walking with you and you're walking with them and you're together uh, engaging the word. And so what happens is... um, Matthias gets elected, as it were. So two men are put forward, Justice and Matthias, and they draw straws, effectively. Um, This is the way that they grounded in the Old Testament. This is the way that they believed that God was going to direct them. And so Matthias fills the spot. What's interesting, you feel kind of bad for justice, right? Like there's only two guys that get put forward and the one wins and the other one loses. So like the loser, like that's a kind of a bummer for him, right? Um, But actually, we don't hear anything about either one of these guys. Like we don't know what happened to them. We don't know. But we also don't know what happened to about eight of the other disciples too. Like we, we don't hear of them throughout the New Testament, now, we, we have church history that tells us certain things about each of the disciples and uh, about these guys as well. But the book of Acts, Luke doesn't record information about a lot of these people. Why? Well, I think it's important for us to recognize that the foundation of the church has always been built predominantly by the anonymous faithful. The people who go without being named, without being remembered, but are faithful during their time. These two guys were faithful guys. As best we can tell, they did what they were called to do. And they became part of the the foundation of faith. In the same way, I'm very aware that what God's doing here among us at any given time is likely the answer to generations of prayers of people who have gone before us. People whose names have been forgotten by history, but have prayed for us. And you and I get to enter into that uh, pathway that's been created through their prayers. And guess what? As we gather to pray, we're praying in a way that decades from now there will be people who walk into and they won't know who you are. They won't know who I am. But as long as we continue to walk faithfully, we become part of that foundation. When we're unified by the word, the, the call is for Jesus to be glorified and for us to simply be faithful. And these guys were being faithful. So with Matthias elected, John Stott in the message of, the, uh, message of Acts uh, says this to kind of set the stage. Though the place left vacant by Judas has been filled by Matthias, the place left vacant by Jesus has not yet been filled by the Spirit. So there's 12 now among the 120. And now they wait. And that's it. They wait. Like what what did this process take? Maybe maybe it took a couple hours? I mean, maybe they waited a little bit, maybe it took a day before they started the process. There's a ten day period between the ascension and the coming of the Spirit, and they just waited. And I think for a lot of us we downplay the power of waiting on God in community. We tend to think that what's really formational, where the action is really at is when God says, go do this, or God moves in a certain way, or there's a, there's a clear message from God that we're engaging. But the argument could be made that the most formational thing that happens to us is that we have to wait. Tyler Staten, again, uh, in a different book, Searching for Enough, uh, he makes this statement. When you're waiting, you're not doing Nothing. You're doing the most important something there is. You're allowing your soul to grow up. You're allowing your soul to grow up. Waiting is that process where we we, we start to fill in the gaps. The Spirit of God, as we are slowing down and as we're waiting on him to move, begins to fill in some of the gaps of our lives. However, for many of us, Waiting looks like this. God, show me the direction. Show me where I need to go. Show me what I need to do. I wait 30 seconds to a minute because God couldn't answer that quickly if he wanted to. And then if he doesn't answer, then clearly he's just asking me to make a decision to go do something, right? And so our waiting is going from one thing to another really quickly because we live in a world that is full of hurry and rush. And that that movement from thing to thing and from place to place gets in the way of being able to experience the fullness of God. There's a guy named Michael Zigarelli, which is a fabulous name. Uh, Michael Zigarelli uh, was working with the uh, the Charleston Southern University School of Business, and he was doing a study on uh, obstacles to growth within the church. Um, And it's a fascinating study, but I I come back to his findings again and again because it's, it's so apropos of our culture. Listen to the way that he says it. It may be the case, this is based on his study, that number one, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness hurry, and overload, which leads to, number two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to, number three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, number four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to, number five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. Then the cycle begins again in this massive study, what he found is that Christians are too busy, which if he just would have come to church on Sunday morning, I could have told him that. Because when you talk to one another, what do you say? Hey, how are you doing? Oh okay, but really busy, right? All the time. We're running from thing to thing and place to place. And in the midst of that busyness, what happens is not so much that we we write God out of the equation, it's that our 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 Relationship with God doesn't have space to cultivate and grow, and uh, we begin to be more and more assimilated to the culture around us the culture, by the way, that is full of loneliness and isolation, because we move from thing to thing to thing so fast. In fact, um, take God out of the equation and take Zigarelli's uh, findings and just replace them with community. And look at how interestingly that flows. So uh, Christians are assimilating to a culture of business, hurry, and overload, which leads to not just God, but the community of faith becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to a deteriorating relationship with other people, other followers of Jesus. So I don't trust you enough. I don't have a, a deep enough relationship to really, really invest. And so that then leads to Christians becoming more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. See, we separate from one another often for the simple reason we're just too busy. We don't have time, don't take time to value one another and value those relationships with one another that allow us to draw together. How does that happen? Well, it happens through waiting. It happens through not running on to the next thing. There are several practices that I could suggest that flow in line with this. I just want to give you two, one of them vertical and one of them horizontal. The horizontal practice that you've probably heard me talk about before is the practice of having a discipleship partner or a few discipleship partners. These are just same-gender people who you are in the long journey with. And, and the long journey is really important to the discipleship partner relationship because, honestly, they're, they're not real glamorous if you're in a discipleship partner relationship, you know that not, there's not like you know, fireworks and excitement and every time you get together, there's this like real exciting kind of next step that happens. Most of the time, it's just connecting together in the mundane. It's processing life together. But it's not just processing life together this month. It's over the course of years, not just for this season, for this little situation that I'm dealing with. But it's over the course of this long period of time, I'm committed to this person, and they're committed to me. And that's where the second practice comes in, the the vertical practice of what the ancients called listening prayer. The reason we have to differentiate listening prayer from prayer for us is that most of us are really good at talking prayer. You know what I mean? When we come to God and just talk, right? Listening prayer is just coming before God, without a whole lot to say, just listening. And when we get together with people who have been on this journey with us for a while, where we're committed to one another, through the ups and the downs and the difficulties, we know each other well, and we together sit and listen to the spirit, we begin to hear and be filled out and shaped and formed in different ways as God finally does direct us. Ten days it took for the Spirit to fall upon the upper room and those 120 to be filled with the Spirit. I, I'm just going to be honest with you. There's a lot that I would have thought about over the course of ten days. Those of you who know me well, I would have had so many ideas in ten days. Um, I, I don't really know. This is, this is an argument from silence. I don't know exactly the way it would work. But if somebody... Um, with a great idea, led all 120 people out of the upper room onto some fool's errand around Jerusalem, would the spirit have come? I don't know how that would work. Like, I mean, I think he would have figured out a way, right? But, like, there's no chance I would have just sat still for 10 days. I'm, it's tough for me to sit still for 10 minutes. <laughs> Learning to wait was part of the process. They were united together because they prayed, They talked about the way that God must be working, the way these prophecies have been answered, and uh, the way that Jesus must have fulfilled this and this, and oh, how about this? And then they, I don't know, sat around and played cards or something. I'm not sure what they did. But they waited. They just waited. Because they knew when God shows up, it's going to be different. We're going to know. And so we're just going to wait. And sooner or later, God's going to show up. Which brings us all the way back to the Surgeon General's report. If we are so isolated and alone, it's not just our physical health that deteriorates. It's our ability to be able to together hear from God, discern what it is that he's saying to us. These 120 disciples, you will find throughout the book of Acts, were far from perfect. But, They were connected. And connection, community, is not an appropriate end. The goal was not that they were connected, but it was a really important means to the end. And the same thing is true for us today. If we are to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth, the best way for us to be witnesses is not isolated, but in community together if we are going to push back against the formational machine that is the culture around us, that's constantly forming us and shaping us through all kinds of different ideologies and ways of thinking, the only way for us to stand against that is to engage in something that is uh, equally or more powerfully formational. And that is the community of faith. That we would be connected to one another in such a way that we we can hold fast to what's actually true community was unified throughout the book of acts there were times that disunity popped up and they fought against it they worked really hard to come back to an understanding why because their unity was always for a purpose There was something God was doing, and you're going to see that throughout the book of Acts. As we study, you're going to see that there's there's community, but that community is always for a purpose, and that purpose is always achieved through community. Those two things are like two strands that were going together, working hand in hand. There was unity for a purpose, and so the question that we should be asking constantly, not just today, but on a constant basis, why has God called us together, and what does it look like for us to be unified for a purpose? what's the reason? What is it that God's doing in me, in my small community, and in this larger community? What is it that God's calling us into? And it doesn't mean we need to run and do it. Sometimes we have to wait and listen, be shaped by the word, to be shaped by prayer. But as we do, there's a difference between hurrying and obeying. So sometimes God tells us to do something And we need to not waste any time in doing it, right? That's not hurrying, that's waiting, and then engaging what he has for us. And so as God directs us, we need to be people who are ready to follow, ready to step into it. But until then, we need to be people who are willing to be shaped and formed through community. The waiting process is a difficult one, but it's one that I believe that God is calling the church into this season, this, uh, this moment in time in this culture um, as he has at every season because it helps to form us together as a community. And so I want us to just take a couple of minutes to allow that truth to, to sink in. There may be uh, different pieces of that that, uh, that resonate with you. Um, for some of us, it's really difficult to be the anonymous faithful, you know, to be the ones whose names are not known. For some of us, it's hard to imagine that, we, that God's calling us to something that's greater than we're capable of doing in our own strength, either because our vision is too small or our view of self is too high. And to really get the, the call that God is inviting us to something so much bigger than us, something that has to, um, has to be empowered by his spirit, a call back to prayer. Some of us enter a place where we need discernment. We need to know what's next. How do I walk forward? Where am I supposed to be walking? What's that look like? And some of us just need to take a step of obedience out of isolation into real community to commit to people that we're going to walk with, that are going to walk alongside of us.